with every guest I like to ask, what did you have for breakfast today? I haven't had anything. Really? <laughs> what are you going to well, do? I had some. No, I had some sushi very quickly on the way here. Okay. So that was my. Well, you ate. Some, you ate something. Yeah, it was my <laughs> desperately rushed breakfast. What would you normally have for breakfast? I don't eat breakfast usually. Okay. I never eat breakfast. Yeah. It's probably a good thing you're fasting then. Yeah, well, some say it's very unhealthy. Some say breakfast is the best meal of the day. No. I've always felt it's a bit overrated. The research says otherwise. Yeah. Welcome to the Uncommon Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Michaelides. The goal of the Uncommon Podcast is to build your worldly wisdom. And this worldly wisdom was coined by Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's business partner. For me, it's about becoming a better investor, a business operator, and a well-rounded individual. Now, we do this by interviewing unique guests, investigating interesting topics, helping you to build this uncommon sense, as Charlie coined it back in the day. Our guests are wide. Some of those have included venture capitalists, strength coaches, bodybuilders, political activists, startup founders, business executives, chefs, restaurateurs, and rappers, to just name a few. Our style, you'll notice, is very much inspired by the likes of Joe Rogan, Charlie Rose, Oprah Winfrey, and Tim Ferriss. So it's sort of that investigative one-on-one style that we like to uncover with the guest. If you want to learn more about previous guests before we get into this episode, please just head over to www.neurale.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the episode, maybe consider leaving us a review and you can do that by heading to either iTunes or Stitcher on the web Search Uncommon Neural and it'll be the first podcast to come up. You can leave a simple review there. We'd really appreciate that. You should also consider signing up to our newsletter. I think 90% of our subscribed listeners are subscribed to the newsletter as well. That just means that you get priority access and show notes first up. You can do that just by heading to www.neural.com slash podcast. And also, don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or Instagram. It's just at Neural on all of those platforms. We push out a lot of spliced content and and cool little sneak peeks for the episode that's coming up, so also consider that as well. Hope you enjoy. Hello, ladies and germs. In this episode, we recorded with Edward Burke. Ed is a political campaigner, consultant, investor, and entrepreneur. Quite a mouthful of titles for someone only 16 years of age. I think as Ed says himself, age is merely a number proving his stance as an incredibly articulate and rational mind when it comes to all things business and politics. And you'll be amazed when you listen to the audio. audio you almost think that you're, you're speaking to a 30-year-old man. Um, it's quite impressive for someone his age. I think... You'll find in this interview, Ed makes it quite clear that he is unabashedly right-wing, something which I think has caused a bit of outrage and will for some of our own listeners. 
but particularly with his support of Donald Trump in the presidential election. Um, I think that over the last few months, there have been numerous discussions around uh, probably the last six months, why Trump, why do people support him and what is so bad about Trump? Um, People will know that I've enjoyed the content of, of individuals like Sam Harris, who is an avowed Trump critic, whereas I also like Scott Adams, who is actually a proponent of Trump's persuasive abilities. I think my own opinion is that we need to break down these partisan walls and understand the humans across the aisle. I think that it's quite bizarre that we live in this modern Western world with all this technology and ability to communicate, and yet we're on this razor's edge between different spectrums of politics, whether it's the alt-right or the regressive left, as people coin both sides. I think um, to agree with one on a topic, you're often put in the camp of that group, let's say whether it's the alt-right or the left, and if you do support a particular topic that that group agrees with, you're often hit with a lot of mock outrage or um, anxiety from that other side of politics. And so I think it's in this conversation that you'll realize that it's not really the label that matters, but the contents of the individual. Some may completely disagree with these views, but you'll probably find that you actually agree with quite a few as well, depending on your politics. I, I really hope that you're able to appreciate the conversation as much as I did. You know, I, I, you'll notice that I don't necessarily agree with him on everything, but I admire the level-headedness of this young man. And I mean, to give you some of the snippets of topics we covered that I thought were quite enjoyable, we covered core principles and his political leanings, economics, government-funded media, trade, foreign policy and immigration, Donald Trump, privatizing healthcare. Uh, I, I tried to flesh out the good aspects of socialism, uh, which was quite tough. Uh, his predictions on Trump's foreign policy, renewables, climate change, why Donald Trump won, which I think was an important point, um, and if his support of Trump, of Trump has changed uh, in the last couple of months as well. We discussed things like opinions on Syria and Turkey, the travel ban, same-sex marriage, democracy and compulsory voting, and the monarchy. Just to name a few, there's a lot there. It's a meaty episode, I think almost two hours. Um, So I hope you do enjoy. If you like this episode, it may be worth checking out my other chats with uh, Felicity or Flick Mashuro, which is episode 13, which we covered uh, political activism, human rights, and immigration. Or there was another episode with Dr. Stephen Bright, which was episode 16. We talked about policy on psychedelics, drugs, and alcohol. If you want those show notes, just head to our index at neural.com slash podcast. So without me rambling much more, please enjoy this conversation with Edward Burke. Okay, Ed, we're live. Thanks for joining. Thank you very much for having me. I want to start with and obviously, with every guest, we include this little bio about them. Yeah. What do you think you're most known for? Probably my support of Donald Trump. <laughs> Anything else in particular? Well, I've you know I've done a lot of political campaigning over the time. I've been in wildlife conservation and philanthropy and business. I've had a, a pretty wide business career for a few years now. Yeah. So it depends who you ask. They'll know me for different things, I suppose. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that people focus on is your age. Do you, does that never annoy you? 
Uh, or do you find so, it funny? Sometimes I, sometimes I find it a bit funny because I've always thought, you know, age is just a, a number. You're only really limited by yourself. Yeah. So if you think you can do something, you want to do it. Yeah. You can. It doesn't really matter how old you are. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people have been impressed by. Um, but I guess that's with everything. Like we, we had a former guest that basically brought out his own restaurant at, he'd be 22 when it started and it's like a, um, they've been hatted with a few yeah. chef's hats. So um, it's always intriguing to see how people focus on that element. Maybe it's yeah. just like a good narrative, good I think story. It, I think it, well, it works very well yeah. in the media. You know, <laughs> When you can open a headline with you know 16-year-old or whatever, it gets people interested. Intr- yeah, definitely. What, what to you stands out from your early childhood? Oh, that's a good question. I suppose just how different I was in my interest to sort of to other students. Like after the weekend, people would come back and they would say things like, oh, I went to the football or whatever, whatever, and I'd just come back from an opera performance or something. It wasn't, <laughs> you know, I never quite had the same interest. And I was very, very razor-focused on my future. I didn't care about what was happening at that point, like that specific point. I wanted to know what the repercussions of that were going to be. Okay. So you were always extrapolating out into the future. Yeah, like when Kevin Rudd was elected when I was seven years old, I wasn't very happy because I felt like I could just see what was coming in the future and it wasn't going to be good because his economic policies didn't work. Mm. Like shoving a bunch of money at people during the global financial crisis. Well, clearly they weren't going to spend it in the non-existent Australian industries that they were getting products from. (laughs) How How did you build up that perception at such a young age? Well, I'd always been very pretty focused on economics. My father was in business a lot, so I got a lot of that business sort of element, the economics of how it would work. Mm. And I just picked it up and sort of soaked it up like a sponge and then extrapolated and developed my own ideas about what I believed. Yeah. Yeah. So you sort of absorbed the archetype and then you, you know, maybe asked him how you could discover more yeah. and went from there. Exactly. Yeah. When did you become interested in genealogy oh from a very very young age ever since i was young i used to like listening to my grandmother tell like family stories because she would just go on and on about everything and then from there i wanted to know exactly where i'd come from Mm. and pinpoint it as far back as possible (laughs) and i did a project on it in year six okay and then after that i just kept going and kept building it and i just found it fascinating what what could you tell us about your family's background well, my family always knew quite a bit about their background, um, but my family background just, well, it goes back thousands of years through lots of, you know, royal lines, this, that, the other title, whatever. But it's just, I just find the people are the most fascinating part. Mm. You know, you can have all the titles in the world, but it's the people that are really the, the, the people who have the titles, what they did. That's the fascinating part. What is so fascinating about that? Well, things like, you know, how people went from being, you know, becoming prime minister in the UK, things like that. Very interesting little events in their own lives that led to that. What What do you think? Um, why do you think your your family came out to Australia? We came out to Australia on my, at least on my father's side, during the potato famine in Ireland. Okay, when everyone was starving, no yeah. matter who you were. <laughs> <laughs> and then we came out and we just took up huge landholds and everything. Okay, and then tried to make that work. And so your family is primarily from Ireland and England? Yeah, and my mother's side uh, primarily from England and a bit from Scotland. Okay. But my on my my grandfather's side on my mother's side, they came out during I think it was would have been 
around the gold rush, they owned a lot of gold mines. Right. And then on her mother's side, he just came over because he wanted to join the army again. Right. He was an officer in the British army. And uh, this is my maternal grandmother's father. Right. And then they kicked him out for medical reasons. And he said, well, I still want to fight. So he came here where they would accept him. Okay. Yeah, it's it's. I sort of envy you in a way because on one side, so my mother's side, they're sort of fifth generation Australian and you can easily trace back their lineage to Ireland. And then on my father's side, it's a little bit tricky. Like he... His father was from Cyprus, mm-hmm. um, so he's educated at, at the time. Then it would it was part it was a protectorate of England, mm. so he went to like an English college. Um, but it's really hard to trace that back because in Cyprus they didn't really keep records, or it was kept at the church, and yeah. then a lot of that stuff was lost. And then his grandmother, oh sorry, my grandmother, it's a little bit harder as well. They've got sort of got an English Germanic background which again is hard to trace back Mm. how did you discover a lot of this stuff well i started public record yeah a lot of it's public record and my family kept like extensive records through history and uh even just starting with my grandmother who you know she had lots of documents and pictures and things so i just tried to start within the family and then get things where i needed them yeah how how long did it take to build this this list that you have now oh it took years it would have been Maybe five years. Right. Four or five years. Wow. And hundreds and hundreds of hours. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. That would be a massive amount of time invested. Yeah. But, you know, just whenever I could find a moment, it was it was very relaxing. I found it cathartic. Are there any lessons that you've learned, whether directly or indirectly, like maybe they said it or maybe um, you just saw it that, that you had from your parents? I suppose my parents were always about you, you don't you don't get things you know given to you in life. It's about you know you have to work for it, and if you're not good enough, you're not you're not going to be there. So my father was always absolutely set on it's hard work, and you have to be you have to be smart, you have to work hard, and you have to totally commit yourself to something. Right, and that's sort of the biggest lesson I took to totally commit yourself to your goal. Okay, and just be relentless in achieving it. Do you think then that you're totally committed to politics or business? See, that's a good question. That's my eternal, my <laughs> eternal conflict. <laughs> I think I'm totally committed to whatever goal I have. And I think that business and politics go hand in hand in a lot of ways in that I believe you, that you can, run a bi- you can run a government like you run a business. And you want to take care of your employees and they can be, yeah, they're the citizens. You want to take care of them as best you can and you want to make sure they have all the money they need. You want to make sure they're taken care of. They've got everything. But then at the same time, you want to make sure that that business is turning a profit Mm. and the budget is staying stable and that everything's going well and that you don't have to take things away from your employees if you're losing money. Mm. You want to make sure you have that balance. Yeah. What What's the earliest memory of, of wanting to be involved in politics? Like what was the moment for you? It probably was when Kevin Rudd was elected. Really? Because I really didn't like Kevin. Well, he was just a megalomaniac. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would admit that from either side of politics. And he just didn't have economic policies that made sense. I mean, they were, they were very good. They sounded very good, but they just didn't work in the long run. And that's when I thought, you know, really, this isn't good. And we need more people with the opposing ideas to sort of try and fight it, fight it off. Yeah. 
Do you have any core principles in life then? In life, I core principles in some ways. Like I was raised with the absolute core principle that you never, ever break the law. Okay. No matter what right. the reason is. So you never you never take a bribe, you never do anything, ever. Yeah. That was what was drummed into me from like <laughs> when I was couldn't even understand it. Yeah. So that's just become a core principle. Certain things like loyalty, I'm very big on loyalty. You know, if if I say that I'm going to do something, it, it will happen. Mm. And no matter what I have to do to I can't I don't just say, Oh look, I tried to do it but it was a bit hard, so I stopped. Like I'll make it happen. I don't care if I have to move mountains to do it. Yeah. I keep my word. Okay. Do you, when it comes to politics, then how would you define yourself? This, I would say, I'm an ultra capitalist in my economic side of politics, and I like to think I'm a, I'm a right wing conservative, but I, I have some populist beliefs. Okay, you know, around making sure I I, I take elements of for trade. I, I like to be protectionist in some areas, but then also quite global globalist in other areas right what um i mean i I feel like people would have certain ideas around what a right-wing conservative is what do you think it is well i think it's impossible to define because all these different right people who say they're right-wing conservatives have like hugely differing beliefs you know donald trump would say he's a right-wing conservative but his beliefs are going to be very different to Tony Abbott's beliefs. Right. That are different to Corey Bernardi's beliefs. That right. are different to John Howard's beliefs. Yeah. So I think that's why you have all the subcategories like, you know, you have people. Have you ever done the political compass? No. Well, it's like this compass where you have the horizontal line and below that is libertarian and above that is authoritarian and a vertical line. And to the left is obviously the left, and to the right is the right. Yes, I have seen this actually. Yeah. And then you have all the subcategories like ultra capitalist, and then different parts of that. Mm. And I think that's why it's so hard to define a right wing conservative, and it's one of the reasons that politics become so complicated on the conservative side. Yeah, because on the left of politics, you have you have socialists, you have you know social liberals that you can easily define it. But when you get over to the right, there's just so many. Then you have the alt right, and then yeah. a whole different story. Do you find it weird though that that people should be able to define one's view on certain policy based on their label? I do. I, I do find that slightly. It can get tiresome. Like you say, oh, I'm a right wing conservative. They instantly say, oh, so you don't want gay marriage? But that isn't. You know, they don't go hand in hand. Or they assume that if you're a conservative, then you must be Christian or you must be religious. Right. Where it just doesn't. You know, it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. What are the sort of who are the archetypal politicians in your your mind? Who have you looked up to the most? Well, there I try and look at different politicians based on what they've brought to their country. Okay, like things like I very much like John Howard. Yeah, in the way that he was able to resist people saying that oh we had to apologise to the Aboriginals. There was this horrible thing. And he just said no, no. Why would I apologise? Right. And I, I really admired that because I think that's what we should be doing. And I really think – I thought his economic policies were really good. I wasn't a huge fan of his gun policies. They weren't my favorite because I think if you want if you want a Glock, have a Glock. You know, if you want a pistol, take it, have it. As long as you've got your license, you've got your background checks, fine. Yeah. Because I'm, I subscribe to the belief that it's not the guns that kill people. It's when you give them to crazy people. Mm. So, as long as you can control it because criminals have guns anyway. Yeah, well, there's a there's a big black market in Australia now. Yeah, and you go on the deep web for two hundred dollars, 
you can get a pistol sent to you. Yeah. You know, it's they're not high. If you're a criminal, they're easy to access. So that's why that's what I didn't like about that. And then obviously you've got people from overseas like General Augusto Pinochet in Chile. And he worked absolute wonders for the Chilean economy. And it was it was almost unbelievable how he was able to take a country where when he took power, something like only 60% of people had clean drinking water. Then when he left, 97% of. Yet he was still able to privatise healthcare and privatise the welfare system, privatise infrastructure. But didn't he kill a shit? Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. You want to take the, some elements and then others there that didn't work, like he would throw people out of helicopters and things like that. They're, they're, they're the parts that aren't mm. desirable. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, it's weird now with politics, like, even the fact that you said then about... Um, apologizing to the aboriginals or that guns don't kill people it's it's sort of we're in a weird space now where to say those things would result in an immediate physical physiological yeah. response from people and like th- th- there's no problem with i'd probably disagree with you on some of the yeah. points but do you find it odd that we're in a situation now where you can't have a proper conversation without it becoming almost Threatening, like I remember, yeah. you you were you had death threats, didn't oh, you? Oh, I had bomb threats. I mean, people just thre- threatening to come and stab me, threatening to kill me. I mean, it went on, and it still does. Really? Yeah. Wow. So you know, people saying that I should get hit by a bus. Wow. I mean, people get very aggressive very quickly, and I just will never engage in aggressive debate. It doesn't get anyone anywhere. Mm. Like if somebody, I would never. If I disagree with someone, I'd never be like, "Oh, you should die," because where does that get anyone? Yeah. And in fact, that's that's just the definition of fascism and a dictatorship. If you say you disagree with me, therefore you must die. I mean, oh, yeah. What I does that say about democracy? Yeah. Why do you think we're in this situation now where people people get to that point? Do you oh. think it's just because they're sitting behind their computer or something else entirely? Well, I think a lot of the emotion is taken away when you're just sitting behind your computer. You know, you're not looking the person in the face. They're not in the room with you. They can't come and get you or they can't react to you. Yeah. So it's so easy just to type something and send it and forget about it. Hmm. You know, I'm sort of the belief that people who spend their day writing abusive comments on Facebook with nothing better to do with their lives (laughs) aren't really the sort of people I'm looking to engage with anyway. Right. Yeah, and it's it's hard with the formats we've got these days as well, isn't it? Mm. Everything's sort of a bite-sized snippet yeah. put on TV or social media. Or sound bites have become the new, you know, full headline story. Yeah. It's why I'm so passionate about these sorts of avenues, I guess. I feel mm. like podcasting is the new AM FM radio. Yeah, I agree. It's getting to that point. Yeah. Um it just makes it better for having lengthy conversations yeah. as opposed to like fuck you fuck you yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> okay so in terms of your principles on policy maybe we'll start with economics yeah well i am an ultra capitalist in my economics i believe in basically total privatization uh-huh. and well one of the policies of my campaign group stronger australia is that we totally privatize the healthcare system which would save about 60 billion dollars well, it would actually save $65.3 billion, but we want to take $5.3 billion to put it in a fund so that underprivileged people can still have access to private health care right. when it is privatised. Okay. So I believe in trying to make things as absolutely private as possible because I think the government gets too involved in these sort of services. So the government doesn't need to be involved in health care, in my view, or, or welfare is too much put in. It's about giving people the opportunity to make their lives as best as, as, best as they can. 
make their life, make themselves successful, give themselves those opportunities. You know, I believe in a hand up, not a hand out. Mm-hmm. You, know, you should be given the opportunity, not given the outcome. Right. What would you say then to the argument about where people who often point to the American system in comparison to ours? Because I can agree with you in some respects, but I mean, I, I mean, I find it silly that I should be given some sort of subsidy when I go to the GP because mm. I can afford to pay for the full amount. Mm. But I can understand how someone who is, you know, medically has got a lot of issues mm. that they would need it. Yeah, and that's why we believe in having a fund. Well, that's why I believe in having a fund set aside for people who do need it so they can still access some subsidies. Right. But spending $66 billion a year giving everyone subsidies and funding everything, it's just not sustainable in the long term. And I think it's – you certainly have to look at the – I take a very utilitarian approach to a lot of policies – so whilst it's important to take the minority into consideration, with you don't want the tyranny of the majority, you have to look at what's best overall and what's going to be best in the future. I mean, 100 years from now, a $60 billion a year healthcare system now is going to be hundreds of billions. What would you say then to the person who argues it, it is a good system and it is worth having? Well, I, I would just say, well, if you look at it now, we can't afford it now. I mean, it's we have a huge budget deficit and the healthcare system that we have could easily be privatized. It's asking to be privatized, just like the NHS in the UK. It's asking to be privatized. It has the the framework, the infrastructure. There are companies that would be willing to take it on, but you know, it's it's just a more effective solution. Mm. And the American system, I don't think, is really comparable, because whilst we've got twenty four million people here, they have four hundred million, mm. and whilst we have certain <clears throat> healthcare problems here, they have a lot more over there. Yeah, so it's it's tough to compare a huge you know, world power, a huge nation like America that has huge debt and huge deficit to us where we're in a more malleable and flexible position. Could you not argue then that it's more important to change the tax system to afford things like this? Not for the goal of affording things like this, but changing the tax system to suit the demographics of the nation? Well, I think that's a really interesting one. I believe in changing the tax system, but in lowering taxes. First, I believe in one company tax at 15%, regardless of the size of the company. Because I think 28% is ridiculous. It pushes all the companies offshore. I mean, the companies that I run are all based in London because taxes are far more reasonable in the UK. I think it's 19%, now they're going down to 17 but a 28% tax is not going to draw anyone in, it just pushes people away. Mm. I think a 15% tax flat for corporations and the top tax bracket is 48%. I mean, that's just unreasonable. I think you need to change the tax, like specifically to income tax, you'd need to change it and have also good policy on the workplace because, yeah. I mean, having been involved in the startup sector or the tech sector mm. here, it's... I mean, and now the government is really – the government actually here in Victoria has done pretty well convincing a lot of massive multinational tech companies to open their offices in Melbourne. Mm. But five years ago, they all they were all opening in Singapore. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, we've, we've got a problem there where they're, they're focused on what they can get, you know, in terms of tax but also workforce. Mm. Like, we don't have enough, you know, um, tech – 
people, yeah. essentially. There's just not enough headcount. No. That's why a lot of startups go to the US, which is a really unfortunate thing, I think. And I think one of the other unfortunate things with the tax system as well is a lot of people say, oh, let's lower the top tax bracket, or well, ultra capitalists like me. But then they forget about the other tax brackets. I mean, I couldn't, I would never say, let's lower the top tax bracket and let's just leave the other two. Because if one's too high, they're all too high. I mean, the middle income bracket, which is what most people fit into, or the middle income brackets, they're far too high. But we're just, it's daylight robbery. The government is just robbing people in broad daylight of all their money and they're not spending it well enough. I mean, 50% of the revenue that the government gets, income tax revenue is about 300, 400 billion. We spent $190 billion last year on welfare. I mean, it's just, it's not fair on people. Because there are people out there who have never, ever taken welfare, even if when they've needed it, they've never wanted it. And they're still forced to pay for people who just want, you know, want these payments. And some payments are extremely important. You know, um, carer's payment, payment for the disabled people, aged care, things like that. Yeah. But there are some, like the bereavement payment and uh, certain payments that are meant to, that also come in conjunction with mental health care payments. You only need one. And it's when you start doubling up and double dipping into the into the pot that it becomes a problem. What about when it comes to demographics? Because one problem I see is the way. So if if we focus on income tax, I don't see the government having a way of getting enough money over the next fifteen years, particularly with the way that um, the nation is aging. Mm. I wonder if it would be smarter to switch to a, a system that focuses on uh, personal expenditure. So you reduce income tax but focus more on like a wider VAT, like widening the GST. Well, I think that that's – it would be an interesting experiment in you know, increasing the GST or widening it, but I think it would be incredibly difficult for certain people. So if you're on a very, very low income – right. And you've got a 15 or 20% GST. Suddenly, that packet of nappies you're going to buy for your child is almost unaffordable. I mean, some people that the tiniest change in things like their everyday expenses can make a huge difference. And I think that's, that's where you run into dangers with the GST and why. I mean, I understand why the GST is there and it's good for revenue. I mean, but it's just the slightest changes in that can change someone's whole life. And that's why they did it with cigarettes. That's why they keep raising the tax on cigarettes. Because for some people, when it was a, a $5 packet of cigarettes, it was fine. When it became a $15 packet of cigarettes, it was unaffordable. Yeah. And I think that it's important to look at the nation as a whole and look at cutting people's income tax so that they can afford more, but at the same time reducing the government spending because you can't just cut taxes and think that it's all going to stay the same. I mean, things like public broadcasting, I don't believe, should get funding because that's not a life essential. Yeah, but I would, I mean, I would say when it comes to the media, though, and I can see how people are frustrated that the ABC or SBS is biased, but I would also argue that as opposed to the main networks, it can be a lot more balanced. Oh, of course it can. And I've never really been opposed to the ABC or SBS. Well, I really don't think SBS is that biased, personally. Yeah, but some people, you know. Some people certainly do. Yeah. And I've never had a problem with the ABC, even if they are biased, because they're biased and people know that they're biased. I just don't think that any network, no matter it's... Even if there was a really conservative TV network, I would hate if that got public funding. Because I just don't believe it's a good way to spend government money. 
Mm. We have so many TV channels free to air. They're, they're there, they're making profit, they've got, you know, it's fine. You don't need to publicly fund more channels. So you're saying that in it, if we weren't funding it, that options for people who either view left, right or in the middle would arise anyway. Yeah, there are going to be options there for whatever your political taste is. And people like to watch things that reinforce their political opinions. Mm. I mean, that's why Fox News is very popular in the US. People watch it for their political views and their suspicions to be reinforced. I mean, people watch CNN when they don't like Donald Trump and they want to hear he's doing bad stuff and they go, yeah, do you know what? I was right about him. People watch Fox News because they talk about the good stuff that Donald Trump does and people go, yeah, you know what? I was right about him. Mm. You know, People watch what they want to watch and hear what they want to hear. And those options are always going to be there. They don't need to be publicly funded. But shouldn't there be something in the middle? Well, they, they, I'm certain there will be TV channels arising in the middle. I mean, things like um, Russia Today in the UK, they're fairly in the middle as far as politically they go. They don't really support the Conservative Party. They don't support the Labor Party. They don't really sway either way. Well, they're Kremlin funded, so except that they want, except they that they're funded by the Russians, they don't want to take a side because they could be the next government. There are always going to be centrist options for people out there. I mean, Channel Seven doesn't isn't really. It's hard to tell whether they're left or right wing, really, because they're not owned by anyone we know of who has a deep political bias. Yeah, I mean, Channel Ten is soon to be owned by Rupert Murdoch. I, I would just argue that those networks are very scant in information. There's just there's not much there. No, well they're they're there to make money and they're there to you know put what <laughs> what pays on TV. Yeah, and that's why I think a lot of people get their news online now. Mm. That's the other thing. We're moving away from from television news. I mean, I can't even remember the last time I watched the six o'clock news. Yeah, I think everyone's being everything is being built for mobile. Yeah, um, I think that much is obvious. But I just feel that you know something in the middle for people to logically build an opinion. You need something valuable. on both sides. I just think they're always going to be there publicly funded or not. Mm. What about when it comes to trade? You mentioned before that you're protectionist in some ways. Is this one of those areas? Well, I believe in ways that we should be protectionist in things that are leaving. So car manufacturing is leaving Australia. We should be protectionist as much we try and save it while it was still here. So I have no problem importing T-shirts from China, importing plastics from China, Things that we don't do here and we have never done here, I have no problem with. But things that are leaving, like car manufacturing, um, you know, aluminium smelting, uh, even things like recycling, that people are moving offshore, that's where we should be saying, no, listen, stay here, because we need these jobs. We need jobs for people. Well, why? But why in that area? Well, I think it's, it's not practical to say to China or China or whatever country it is, we're going to put a you know, a 25% tariff on all T-shirts coming into Australia because we want the T-shirt industry. Right. Because it's never going to happen. We don't have, we've, we've never made T-shirts. It would be so expensive. It would never work. We'd never have businesses that would want I'd never. I wouldn't want to start a business making T-shirts in Australia. It would never work because I'd have to be charging, you know, $70 for a T-shirt. But things that like car manufacturing that we did have here and that was working, you'd be saying, no, I mean, Donald Trump did it. In America, he told Ford that he'd be putting a 45% tariff on every Ford that crossed the border from Mexico to America, and they moved their factory back 
to America. It it does work <clears throat> because if we start letting all the jobs leave and we're not getting we're not getting any industry. Malcolm Turnbull, if he uses the word innovation again, the innovation this innovation that no no, that's just his excuse for being unable to save the industries we've got. Saying, oh, let's just create new industries. Let's go. Let's create another industry and another industry and another industry. Innovation's important. But what we've got now to save is also important because we're not getting new industries enough. I mean, I have a view about things like SpaceX with Elon Musk and Tesla. I think we should offer, be offering them extremely low taxes oh, yeah. just yeah. to come here. Yeah, I'm, I'm in complete agreement there. We should be building out a space industry here. Yeah, I agree. We've got a huge area. Yeah. <laughs> in order to test things. I would say to Elon Musk, we'll give you a five, 5% tax if you just come here, hire people, and start testing. Mm. I'm intrigued that it feels like, because what I've read on the conservative side of politics, the main concern with losing a lot of manufacturing. And so the company, I'd preface this by saying the company I work at, it's, it's, it's very intriguing to look at the split of each sector mm. in the economy as the codes at the ABS change every mm-hmm. 10 years and we, we have to update our system every 10 years. And you look at it, uh, so it was updated 2006, you look at 96 and then 86. 86 and 96, the manufacturing sector was the dominant mm. sector. And to see it now, it's sort of whittled down even in 2006, so there was more in services and retail wholesale trade. Mm. And I would suspect that when it gets updated over the next year or so, that manufacturing will be even smaller than yeah. that. But the argument I've seen of keeping manufacturing in some capacity is for a wartime economy. Do you think that's what's over overriding in your head is important for that or is it just simply the jobs? Well, I'm extremely militaristic in my view. I mean, my campaign group, Stronger Shatter, and me personally believe that we should have our annual funding for the military at around $85 billion for the next 15 years to build it up, to get the manufacturing here. But I think manufacturing, just to say, oh, no, we need to keep manufacturing, guys, for a wartime situation, it just it seems like a really quick mm. sort of response to a... So why should we why should we keep manufacturing? I don't know, maybe a war? There are, there are more important reasons and more pressing reasons. I mean, we should be building our military industry because that's huge. I mean, that could provide thousands upon thousands of jobs. But things like the car industry and uh, – well, the car industry is a good example. People in Geelong rely on that car industry. And I don't want to see those people get kicked out of their houses, not be able to pay their debts, I mean, not being able to pay their schools, their children's tuition fees, buy them books, buy them uniforms. They need jobs. Mm-hmm. If any, Every successful economy needs jobs. And that's why we need to keep the industries here that we've got, the ones that people have relied on for years, and build new ones. Yeah. So maybe then jumping into foreign policy, why do you think uh, the capabilities for a larger and having a larger military expenditure is important? Well, I think it's important because the military we've got now is we might as well not have a military. Oh, come on. I mean, the CFA (laughs) in Australia, uh, the CFA in Victoria, the Country Fire Authority, is bigger than the Australian military. By headcount. By, by, yeah, by manpower. Yeah. Our military can't protect us. We have no hope. If China wanted Australia, they could have it. If Indonesia wanted it, they could have it. Uh, no, I would argue against that. Well, Indonesia has a huge military force They do, to us. but um, technologically it's not very well advanced. One of my favourite passions is war games. Yeah. Like I, seeing comparisons of 
firepower yeah. and technical and strategic capabilities. If I would argue Indonesia's got no chance. All of our in- entire defense relies on our allies. And that's just so such a bad situation to be in because America if China if China had an issue with us, right, and wanted to take not necessarily the mainland but part of Australia, America wouldn't be able to help. Well, I'd agree with that. I think um our in many ways Australia whether it's um and I know you're a bit of a monarchist, but uh I think, yeah, militarily and in some other ways, we're a bit derivative. We are, and we, we need to have it be able to pursue our own interests as well. I mean, right now, we just follow... I mean, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was able to pressure us into putting more troops in Afghanistan. We're not even in the North Atlantic. Yet, because we have no military capability to do anything independently, we just have to pander to all these people. Oh, yes, America. Yes, Britain. You know, Yes, UN. Yes, NATO. No. Let's do our own – if if we choose that we want to go and wipe out – if we want to side with, I don't know, whoever it is and we want to go and help them in there, even, even if the UN disagrees or NATO disagrees, we should have the right to go and do that. And we shouldn't be beholden to other people telling us what to do out of the fear that we aren't independent enough. I mean, having a strong military is, is a non-negotiable in today's world. I mean, if we decided that we wanted to take action against North Korea – we should have the right to be able to. We should have the ability to be able to go and do that. We just don't have it now. Mm. That one's a bit complicated, but I can see what you mean. It's more about extending power, yeah. overtly. Um, how would how would then how would you define your your foreign policy views? They are they're hard to define. I'm very much. I'm very empirical person. So sort of empirical, as in I like to study data. And work out exactly what the logistics of everything are, foreign policy wise. But then I'm very sort of I like the idea of Australia being able to pursue our interests regardless of other countries. Just because someone disagrees, I, I have a personal dislike for the United Nations. I've never liked them. I don't like them. I don't like NATO. I don't like the UN because I don't like the UN. I don't like NATO. Sorry, I don't like the EU because I believe in sovereignty of nations. If two nations want to go to war, go on, do it. See who can win. Like the whole Palestine-Israel issue drives me insane. Can somebody please just declare war on one of them? Are they in a permanent state of war? Exactly. But somebody, I mean, if Israel wants Palestine, right, I have no problem with it. If they can, if they can conquer Palestine with their military, which they could, because in the, in the, in the nine wars that Israel has been in in their 69-year history, they've never lost a war. So if they can if they can conquer Palestine without being invaded by the other Middle Eastern nations or attacked, they go for it. But don't we not want that if we want economic certainty? Well, economic certainty, I believe, is a bit of a myth. I mean, there is never a time of economic total certainty because like that, anything can change and suddenly your economy isn't what it used to be. Mm. I Back, if you look a long time ago, before world wars came basically a result of world peace. It's just what happens. When everyone gets along and says, let's just all work together, guys, eventually someone snaps and then everyone snaps. Whereas if everybody's allowed to pursue their own goals, their own strategic goals, we want this bit, we want that bit, everyone has their little annoyances with each other, and then eventually it all comes down. It's when you start getting everyone happy for so long and peaceful, 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 peaceful. Everybody just gets angry and the tension builds. And then it breaks. Isn't that – I mean, I read a book by Yuval Noah Harari and it's called Sapiens. Mm-hmm. 
And it's about how humans were able to expand in the way that we have mm-hmm. from, you know, a million years ago when we first came out of Homo erectus mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. Not a million years ago, half a million years ago. Um, we haven't been around that long. But he spoke about, in particular, our ability to tell and, and believe stories. Mm. You know, like the idea of um, Peugeot as a company. I mean, it's not really anything. It's just a myth in our head. But we still believe in its physical existence, mm. you know. Wouldn't it be wiser then as a species to focus on a bigger picture a la Elon Musk and focus on moving to other you know, planets and whatnot, becoming an interplanetary species well, as opposed to worrying about the story of this nation versus that nation? I think moving to other planets would be great in the future. It concerns me a bit because we've screwed this one up so much, <laughs> yeah. what we would do to other planets. Yeah. But I think when you look at nation versus nation, it's, I think it's so important to be nationalistic and it's so important to be proud of your nation. And the saddest thing is when people can't point to something to be proud of. That's the saddest thing. And nations, you see people that have huge military parades. Russia has huge military parades. They have a big military. They, they're happy to use it every now and then. I mean, Indonesia has huge military parades, looking closer to home, uh, Singapore. These, the places that invest in their military and invest in their personnel and use it and are happy to show it, they're happy to pursue their interests. The people have something to point at and say, that's my country and that's I'm proud of that. We're, we're out there and we're, we're pushing for what we want. I'm sick of Australia fighting for what other countries want. We need to start fighting for what we want. We have no interest in fighting Bashar al-Assad. It doesn't help us. Yeah. I mean, if anything, building, I believe, building a stronger relationship with Russia and Bashar al-Assad help us more than fighting them. It just it. We need to start thinking what's best for us, not what's best for the countries that control us. What do you think is in our interest then? Well, I think in Australia's interest is probably securing things like um, our right to gas reserves in the East Timor Sea, whether East Timor is even a country, because we've been having that fight for ages. I mean, some governments in Australia have recognised Indonesia's annexation of East Timor. Other, other governments have said, no, do we really? Now we're having arguments with the autonomous government of East Timor, which we used to think didn't even exist, over their gas reserves. I mean, we need to start looking at our immediate area and, you know, the Pacific. What are, we, have no, we don't have naval control. Of the, we don't have naval dominance in the Pacific. How ridiculous is that? Most of the islands, island nations, don't even have navies. And we can't even get naval dominance. I mean, these are the sort of things we need to focus on. Yeah, I would agree with that. The picture of naval dom- naval dominance it's it's a bit weird with our sea locked country that mm. we don't have as much of a capability as we could. Mm. Oh, um, I find that interesting though. We're going to get into Trump later, but um, I think the other key area is immigration. Mm. How would you define this? Well, immigration. I believe that immigration can be good. I think we should lower our immigration intake to about 100,000 a year, which is still pretty generous. I mean, because we, we have a lot we have a, we have a lot of unskilled people coming now, in. Define, when, when you say 100,000, are we talking... We're talking legal immigration. Like four four five seven type visas? Yeah, we're or? talking like totally legal immigration. Right. Not refugees. That's a whole other story. Mm. But I, I think legal immigration is, is great for a country. Because when you're getting skilled people in to do skilled jobs, I thought it was ridiculous when 
the government took away airline pilots from the 457 visa. That was a terrible choice because now we have a shortage of airline pilots. You're meant to have about a 1,000 hours in the air before you become an airline pilot. There are people doing it with four to 500 hours because we have a shortage. Right. If we have a shortage of people, we want to encourage them to come in here whilst we train our own people. And I think as, but as far as refugees go, for me, that's another issue. I don't believe in letting in. I don't believe in just opening the gates to refugees. My system, I, believe, I don't believe in offshore detention either. I think I read last that offshore detention costs us about $10 billion a year. Yeah, it's ludicrous. I think we literally have one of the largest expanses of desert in the world, in our nation. There is ample room for detention centres in the desert. Where are they going? That is more secure than an island. Because if they escape or they break out of a desert detention centre, where could they possibly go? They're not going to last very long in the Western Australian desert. If, if, like if people are worried about security, oh, no, it's far more secure offshore. It's not. And it's cheaper to build it here. And if we have them offshore, it means the UN inspectors can come and have a look around. They can point out problems, make us fix things. They can't come into our sovereign nation if we say no. Mm. Yeah, I had um, a, a, hu- a human rights lawyer as a previous guest, and it was just very intriguing to hear about how lengthy that process is as well. Mm. Would you speed, speed it up in some instances? Well, I think we should just – when if we should have a navy and we should have the right to use that navy for sovereign border control, right? If there are people in, coming into our borders, that's a breach of our sovereignty and we should have the right to use whatever we deem necessary. If they do reach our mainland, right, which should be, un- which should be unlikely, then you have to process them quickly. Because the longer they're there, the more they cost. And the more time-consuming it is, the more upset people get. If they have skills, right? if they can prove they have transferable skills and we, either they speak English or we can teach them English at a low cost, then we can look at letting them in, resettling them. But we shouldn't be offering them welfare. Yeah, the, I've got a lot of issues with the current um, system. I think I, I, the reason I say this is because Obviously, my family and my girlfriend's family, they came here from Germany, Poland, and Greece. Mm. So, back then, it was, it was obviously, you know, you go to like Bonagilla mm. or something like that. You would come in on an onshore center. You'd be processed in, I don't know, three to six months, mm. um, the standard security checks and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, obviously, it was not, not as um, a, li- a little simpler back mm. then. But then you were immediately able to go get a job. Mm. It's sort of weird now how... They're prevented from getting a job for almost, is it two years? Yeah, I think that's ridiculous because that just hurts us. Yeah, and it hurts them mentally as well. But we should have them working as soon as possible. Mm. And with the, I take the view in the Northern Territory, in Western Australia, in Queensland, in New, in, um, New South Wales, we have a lot of farmers that are struggling to stay afloat, right? If they had cheaper labor, like in the form of newly arrived refugees, that would totally change their perception of being able to be profitable. And the refugee families are happy because they would have jobs and job security on the farms. And they would have cheaper, the farmers would have cheaper labor. I don't believe in the minimum wage, personally, I don't think it works. But they would have cheaper labor, the refugees would have jobs, and then even mining companies that can barely turn a profit. 
I mean, they would they could have cheaper labour. The refugees again have jobs, and in the mining communities, they already have houses for them. They have food for them. I mean, there there are so many opportunities for them to work and give something back. And then from there, they're learning skills in those jobs that they can then take out of those jobs into the wider community. Yeah. I think the mining one's a bit tricky because you're looking at projects that are multi-billion dollar projects. So your your potential for profitability is more on the price of the commodity rather than the oh, labor. Yeah. I'd argue also that, you know, labor costs are... I mean, I have mining companies as clients mm. now. A lot of the processes and systems are being automated. They and, are. Um, you know, robotics and other automation systems yeah. are heavily present. So I, I don't know. I feel like that is more to do with the revenue side. But um, what what don't you like about the uh, the minimum wage? Well, I think if you get rid of a minimum wage, well, one people aren't going to suddenly be paid like third world sweatshop wages. That's not how it works. Because although we wouldn't have a legal requirement for like how much you have to pay people we still have a cultural standard of pay so when the wages were deregulated under margaret thatcher in the uk they didn't find any huge change because people knew how much they were meant to be paid but what it does do is it allows us to employ people at a much lower wage who can then be trained so we have a lot of homeless people right say it costs five dollars an hour to train someone right in this job that's how much it takes away from their revenue. And at the moment, they'd have to be paying them $16 plus the $5 an hour training, $20, not affordable. But if you could pay them you know, $7 an hour plus the $5 training, you can train someone and get them as cheaper labor. What if there was a halfway point where you didn't remove the minimum wage but you changed it for certain groups of people? Like, cause the, I would say this because – when I was first starting getting first started getting into the finance industry, mm-hmm. I just wanted experience. And the thing is, yeah. they couldn't hire me. Mm-hmm. They couldn't give me a part time. Mm-hmm. I don't know, not not even part time, casual hours. Like let's say sixteen hours a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew someone at an investment bank, mm-hmm. and I just wanted experience. But he said that he just couldn't hire me because of the whole process involved. Yeah. What if would you agree to something that? maybe did that for younger people or people who were less educated and just wanted... Well, I believe in sort of economic standardisation. So I think across the board, if there's no minimum wage, there should be no minimum wage totally. But I especially believe in giving businesses the ability to make people or let people work for nothing. So there are a lot of young people who, as you say, willing to work for... Some are willing to work for nothing just to get the experience or very little. And I think... Saying to businesses, oh, you can't do that because it's unfair to the, the workers. It's really more unfair to the workers to deny them the experience of being able to get the skills and the job it's just to be paid a lower wage. Mm. I think it's difficult to justify that, oh, no, don't let them work for nothing even if they want to because that's unfair to them. What, so you mean like limiting what they want to do is unfair? That doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard one because obviously people look at the short-term pain associated with the no pay. Yeah, as the thing front of their mind. I want to jump into Trump, and when I I sent um, Tom a message because I quite enjoyed listening to the episode. And this was mm. when was that? It was like September of last year, or was something it like? It would have been something like that. Yeah, it was, it was definitely while. last year. Yeah, last year. Yeah. yeah. Um. Look, I, I got to preface this by saying I can't understand someone as rational as yourself and well spoken as yourself, or someone even like 
Scott Adams, who draws the Dilbert cartoons, can see something in Trump. I think there was a Sam Harris podcast recently and it was coined the most powerful clown alive. (laughs) I thought that was an adequate representation. And I mean... Surely you saw that analysis of um, by Chris Ullman from the ABC recently. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The one at the at the G twenty. See, initially I thought, look, maybe the things that Scott Adams is saying about his ability to persuade people and then act on America's behalf, maybe there is some some substance, but that to that, but I don't know. I, I can't see any value in him for anyone anymore. So I'm intrigued. Has your opinion changed from when you were interviewed back in September to now? No, I still fully support Donald Trump. And the thing that I support (laughs) most about is I supported him to be president of the United States because I thought he'd be the best president for the United States. And I still believe that because what his campaign promises he has delivered on. I mean, in the first month of uh, a presidency, they usually spend roughly $26 billion on new regulations. He only spent $33 million. I mean, he said he would cut red tape. He did it. He said he was going to put tariffs on Ford to get them back in other industries. He did it. He said that he was going to put America first on the world stage, and he's doing it. He said that he wouldn't listen to NATO, and he's doing it. He said that he wouldn't listen to Angela Merkel in the EU, and he's ignored her and what she, her demands have been. What is good for America then in your mind? Well, what's good for America is trying to get back all the industry and economic growth that they lost to the rest of the world. Is it though? I mean, I think for the American people, it is. I mean, if you think what's best for America as a world power, well, keep building your military, maybe annex Iraq, um, annex a couple of other Middle Eastern nations, build you know a huge military stronghold in the Middle East, invade North Africa. I mean, if you want to know what's best for America as a world power, then probably something like that. But they sort of already have that by proxy anyway. They don't need to. A lot of people politically would argue that's inhumane and will send the world into a spin. Exactly. But therefore, they have bases in the in these areas anyway. Exactly. And I certainly don't think that America should go around invading people. But what I think is best for America is is building up America again. America spent years and years and years building their influence over other countries. And it hasn't really helped them hmm. because they've just been entered into wars and conflicts that have cost them trillions of dollars, and they've got nowhere. I mean, Donald Trump should almost take the Vladimir Putin approach, where he went totally protectionist after the sanctions, which I think were a misguided choice, by primarily by Germany. But he went totally within himself, and the economy was in, you know, it wasn't going very well after those sanctions. And he said, okay, what are we going to do here? Well, let's look at our allies, let's build new trade agreements, with China especially, let's look at what we've got. We've got these resources. How can we build our, our banks back up, build our finance industry back up? And he did it. And now the ruble is quite strong again. Mm. His his main problem, his problem will forever be, though, that they don't have many um, ports that aren't frozen. That's why they mm. invaded Sebastopol or the Ukraine. Mm. So, yeah, that, I, I can't see them ever becoming a world power as they were. I think they, they were world power simply because they had the eastern comp- yeah. component of, oh, of Europe. Absolutely. But I think economically what the way he took his country is almost what it's, – it's what Donald Trump is trying to do and what he should be doing is retreating back within yourself and working out your domestic problems 
and then focusing on the rest of the world. But what about the argument that, and I know I know you mentioned Paul Krugman, so I went and had a look mm. at a few of his interviews. Um, he, I mean, his thing is he cites a lack of understanding of the balance of payments, mm-hmm. but specifically around manufacturing versus uh, services. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing that stands out to me. Like, doesn't it make more sense to focus on building up your service economy? Well, I think building up all industries of your economy is super, super important. And one good thing about, well, manufacturing, the difficulty with building manufacturing is it provides jobs, right? But it doesn't create millionaires, new millionaires, or it doesn't create new, very successful people. Building up your industry in manufacturing will keep certain companies very successful and will give lots of people fairly low-paying jobs. Right? So that's the good part about building industry. When you build other industries, especially things about I'm a big believer in small business, you're, you're leading the way to create new corporations, to create new large taxable entities, new, new large corporations to give more jobs. That's why building industry is very, very good for keeping a population stably employed and giving people income and giving people the ability to put food on the table. Whereas encouraging small businesses and things like that is what gives people the ability to one day, you know, buy a building in the middle of the city, you know, to to own a penthouse that's worth fifty million dollars, or you know, to own you know a mansion on Sydney's North Shore. You know, that's what it gives people the option. Mm. So you have to have a balance. You have to have both. But it's important to focus on letting people build it themselves because when people build things themselves, that's when they work the best. When people have dedicated their life and time to building their own business, it's like a child. They want it to succeed and that's what the important part. Yeah, so it seems then that you're saying that what he's focusing on in your mind that you agree with is he's focusing on the area that their economy has lacked in this case mm manufacturing and keeping that there yeah and that's important for a long-term stable employment and he's also of course going to cut taxes for small businesses cut red tape for small businesses so not only is he creating new millionaires and new billionaires and new corporations but he's keeping people who don't have either the skills or desire to go into business themselves employed so they can still put food on the table that's when you have a thriving population look one thing i i'm (laughs) I'm amazed by sort of this, I don't know, the unmooring of truth that comes with the recent hyperbolic politics that you see through Trump. Why um, why do you think politicians are so dishonest? Well, there's long been the, the saying politics is about perception. So I think more and more, and I think it's wrong, because I think more and more they're realising that people will believe them if they sound good enough. So Donald Trump certainly used hyperbole in what he said, but he kept doing this this verbal tick where he'd say, it's true, it's true, it's true. And if you say it's true enough, it becomes absolutely believable. And he did it so well that other now in other countries people are going, you know what, it's true. This is this what happened the other day. you know. And it, people need, I think it's time for a more... One thing about Donald Trump is he was willing to tell the truth a lot. I mean, obviously he threw in some hyperbole, but he was down to earth enough to tell people what was wrong. You know, here instead of 
if if it was in this country, people would be saying things like, um, it was Hillary Clinton. They would say, you know, Miss Clinton is uh, she's being looked at for a series of allegations that are, are very damaging. But over there, he said, oh, she's corrupt, Hillary, corrupt, took bribes. That's what she did. And people went, you know what? Yeah, that is what she did. We don't need the fancy double speak where you don't really want to say it, but you want to say it, but you don't want to upset her. Just say what she is. She was corrupt. And I think it's people are missing that that element of just being down to earth and telling people what the problem is. I'd agree with you that, yeah, Hillary was not the best candidate, but I don't know. I, I feel that he talks a lot of bullshit. He says a lot of lies. Well, he's a good politician. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a, even though he said he wasn't a politician, he became a very, very apt politician in as much as he could, he could make something sound amazing and great and without totally lying and without telling everyone the whole story. Which I think is, I think you should just tell people what the problem is. I mean, I, if I was a politician, I'd be happy to tell people, listen, we can't afford welfare. And just because someone stops giving you something for free doesn't mean they're stealing from you. There's a difference. And that's the biggest problem with our welfare system and our healthcare system. When you give someone something for free for so long and then you stop giving it to them, they feel like you're stealing from them. Well, yeah, that, that, that's, um, that's an obvious one. I was reading this book, Persuasion, and that was covered. If you take away certain benefits in a workplace, you're going to have a very harsh reaction. Which is why, you know, it's, it's a terrible – you shouldn't – a nation should never breed a sense of entitlement because the only thing you're entitled to is the opportunity to be successful. That's what everyone's entitled to, the opportunity to be successful. And that's an opportunity you create for yourself. You can't be handed up. You're, you're entitled to live in a safe country to say what you want and to be successful. But you have to create opportunities for yourself. You can't just be given them. So your argument is that it's not that people need it, it's that they just want it. Well, it's there. We're giving it to them. Mm. That's the thing. Even if they don't want it, they get it. You don't want, you don't want public health care? It doesn't matter. You're getting it. There's no opt-out button on Medicare. Yeah. But, I mean, you could also argue that a lot of people need it. A lot of people do need it. But, you know, privatizing the healthcare system has worked in poorer nations than Australia. What would the example be? Well, it worked in Chile, where they prioritized the healthcare system and set up funds for people who couldn't afford it, and it worked. And they're much poorer than we ever were. So if someone was to go in and investigate that, what, what would they be looking at? In Chile? Yeah. Well, when, in Chile under General Pinochet, when he held off for a long time privatizing healthcare because he was worried about the people's reaction. <laughs> the man who killed a shitload of people in his healthcare system. I'm not saying he was good in a, a good humanitarian. Yeah. But when he privatized the healthcare system, he set up a lot of – he pushed all into private healthcare funds, then set up some public funds for those that couldn't afford it and really needed it. And it worked for people and it's still intact today, the system is basically totally intact today in Chile because they kept it because it worked. And, you know, he wasn't, you know, he, well, he once had a quote, it just makes me laugh. He said, I'm not a dictator, I just have a grumpy face. Wow. I mean, he was a very, I mean, he was, well, he was one of Britain's closest allies south of the equator. Was he? Yeah, he helped, he helped them win the Falklands. Okay. That's why they sheltered him when he was kicked out, when he was deposed. And then when he was deposed, people were so unhappy, they brought him back. Weird. Really? Yeah. He was deposed in 1990, and they kept him as head of the military until 1998 because people loved him so much, and they brought him back as a senator for life because of how much rioting there was that he was gone. And no one killed him? No one killed him. It's a bit weird. 
He was just <laughs> dictator who wasn't killed. I, it is. It's a very. He's a very different. I mean, if you actually look up, if you Google it, like look at research General Pinochet, he's such a different sort of dictator. There was a movie made around him, or the at least the uprising there wasn't it. I think it was called No. Yeah, yeah I think it was. Yeah, okay, I'll like go see a banal or someone like that was in it. Yeah, I'm going to have to go check it out. Yeah, it's, it's just a very – of all the – I mean, it's, it's very interesting comparing – Venezuela is collapsing. They, it's, it's a very sad thing that's happening there right now. They chose the socialist direction. And then you look at other South American countries like Chile that chose the ultra-capitalist direction. They're now thriving. And Venezuela is just crumbling. But it, I think a lot of people would agree with you that capitalism is the best. I My personal opinion is it's – the best system of allocating resources. Hmm. That's what we're trading essentially hmm. when you don't have it. But um, there are aspects of what what aspects then of the social of socialist systems do you respect? Well, very little. I respect. But surely, there's some. I respect the idea of being compassionate okay. in socialist systems. They feel like everybody should be given all these services for nothing, and it's really nice, and that's really great. And it sounds good. And if I had a bucket of money that never ran out, I would give some to other people. But the the problem with socialism, or this is what Margaret Thatcher said, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. Money is not an endless commodity. I mean, if it was, I'd own all of that. I mean, or everyone would own everything. Yeah. That's, yeah, the, that's I, the problem is that the logistics about spending all this money don't, don't work. I think there's something innate, though, about some socialist policies or socially democratic policies. I think it, it sort of goes back to an era where we, where we were tribes, and I feel that, um, you know, the rationale I use is you would be sitting there in a group and some people would hunt and some people would do other things and sometimes there'd be sick people and you'd look after them and, and so on and so forth. And saying all of that, it's, it's well documented in... A few instances that some tribes used to kill off old people, which is a horrible thing mm. <laughs> when they when they couldn't keep up with the group. Mm. Um, but that's sort of the analogy that I'm that I'm looking at. Mm. It's it's very and one of the worst things about socialism. One of the is just it just totally disregards like democracy totally. Uh, eventually, it just I mean, the leader of um, Venezuela just shut down parliament when he didn't like it. Just close parliament for today. I mean, even other countries like Chile, they had a parliament and was never shut down because they still wanted people to have a say, especially because when you're in those sort of countries where dictatorships rise and fall so quickly, if you don't keep your people happy, they will just depose you. That's the amazing thing. And I'm surprised that Robert Mugabe is still in power in, in Zimbabwe. It's never because he hasn't built a cult of personality. He hasn't built working economy and working economic system. But he's been there for like thirty or forty years. Yeah, I think the main thing, the main reason he's still there is he gave people what they want, and that was land. Exactly, he just yeah. took it away from white people. Yeah, even though that wasn't really his decision. Apparently, he was he was more interested in reconciling and everyone sort of what living together. And then his party threatened to boot him out of power and depose him. And then over time, he just grew more radical in his views. Yeah, I'm not well as well read on Mr. Mugabe. No, he's very. I just don't even know what to make of Rob Mugabe. Just brutal. He has. There's no democracy. There's basically no effective justice system. 
he just gives gave people what they wanted and said in exchange, never question me. Right. Does is it quite a violent dictatorship? Oh, it is a very violent dictatorship. Right. For those who oppose Robert Mugabe. Right. So, but, yeah. so the the majority don't though. No, the majority just yes, Mr. Mugabe, we understand. He doesn't speak the local language either. Really? No. From what I've read, I think he only speaks English. So he doesn't speak Shona or anything. No, like I don't that. think he does. No. Well, wow. he's quite disconnected from his people. Like a like a lot of dictators. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so when it comes to uh, Trump's foreign policy, I, I find it interesting then that you would support him because we spoke before about projecting your influence. Mm. Um, I had uh, I've listened to a podcast and other interviews. Um, a lot of the the Navy SEAL or the military community are strong on this, but. This is something I can agree upon, and they they saw they show it sort of self evident in any empire or any powerful na- superpower, let's say, mm-hmm. that it's in the interest of that group of people to extend their influence, whether overtly or covertly. Yeah, I agree. So, how then do you reflect what Trump is saying when he's quite isolationist? And obviously, you would you, we heard that. Chris Ullman analysis, and he spoke about yes. them sort of sidestepping the leadership position in the world. I That's the one thing that I worry about. The number one thing is him sort of stepping away enough so that China and Russia can have more influence in the world when they have a yeah. fairly undemocratic process. I think you'll find, and this is just my prediction, that rather than America moving from being influence being an influencer to being an isolationist they're more moving from overt influence to covert influence i think that's where america will be shifting so the instead of saying when north korea is getting a bit on the rocks america we've seen instead of saying okay we're going to invade or we're going to take you to the un like they would have done under obama or hillary clinton donald trump performs nuclear exercises on their border with you know, bombers and fighter jets and things like that. Or he just sends an aircraft carrier and a fleet of Navy ships just around, sailing around Japan and back. He's moving not from being an influencer to not, just he's taking a more covert way of doing it. Well, I would argue that that's almost overt. Because you're sort of standing out there and saying, hey, look at my, look how big my dick is. It's so overt, though, that it becomes covert to the rest of the world. So as the rest of the world sees overt power, when they can see it. But when everyone's talking about it, it's almost not there. So when you're just like, oh, yeah, they're just the ships coming around uh, uh, Japan or, yeah, America's just coming down to Darwin for a while, it's so nonchalant and not a worry that it almost doesn't exist. Is when people are going, oh, my God, did you see those ships that just came past there? That's when it becomes so overt. You can have operations that are so covert that they're extremely noticeable. So you think them flying the bombers over over the not the border or near the border is actually quite covert. I think for the as far, not for North North Korea saw it loud and clear. Yeah. But for the rest of the world, you just go, oh, it's just a military exercise. Good on South Korea. I'm glad they're building their military again. And then people just forget about it. It's when you try and make things secretive and suspicious and or, you know, that we're just flying bombers or they, they see bombers and the media reports it before America says they're doing it. You know, it's, it's when things – you try and make them covert, they become very overt. Okay. I don't know. I feel I – feel, I can understand what you're saying. 
I feel like there's there's a distinct difference between Obama's and uh, Trump's policy on extending yourself. Like mm. it's sort of obvious to me that Syria is a proxy war, mm. um, but the general public doesn't know that. So that to me stands out as being covert. Whereas mm. North Korea is, you know, everyone sort of goose stepping along and doing, you know. Mm practices of See, uh, that's where <laughs> overt power comes in especially that's what military parades are they're an overt way to show that you have something that you could use without threatening to use it and it's worked so well for all nations i mean russia does it almost better than everyone else they will clear the streets of moscow for huge military parades and even though you know moscow isn't that close to any of russia's major rivals they can see it on their television. Mm. But when you, if there was a fighter jet that just flew over there and everyone's like, yeah, it's just a military exercise, just a bit of a bit of a, everyone go, oh, yeah, it's cool. Oh, I just see the fighter jet earlier today. It's, it's so overt and right there that nobody would notice it. Right. I know you're, you, you're definitely positive when it comes to climate change. Mm. How have you felt about his lack of leadership? When it comes to this? It's unsurprising. I knew that as much as I don't think Donald Trump will do a lot. I'm glad he pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Why is that? Because even if they met their targets for the 14 years it's in place and then for the next 100 years, it would only postpone climate change by four months. It's just not an effective agreement. It would never work. Um, So I'm glad he pulled out of that. And I think what he's going to focus on more is homegrown solutions. And I think that's where everybody should go. I'm not a fan of international research agreements around climate change. I would like to see Donald Trump put the money that they were going to put into the Paris Climate Agreement into building the solar industry in America. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Things like that, building you know, um, the Tesla, investing in that. But do you think having checks and balances internationally is a good thing to do? I think it's good to every so often in, in, you know, for the global community to meet up and compare what everyone's got and trade what everyone's got. You've got better battery technology than me, let's trade it, and then I'll use some of it. That's great. But I think when you say, okay, everybody put all your money in this pool and we'll divvy it up and we'll see how that works, it just doesn't work because people use money best when they're using it in their own economy. That's when people really – when it's their own money in their own economy with their own jobs and their own opinion polls – that's when they want to use it well. When it's someone else's money from another country and it's part of an international agreement that you don't really get any benefit from publicly, nobody cares. How did you feel then about Tony when he was in power, Tony Abbott's strong objection to the renewable industry? Well, the renewable industry, I think, I, didn't li- I don't like objections to the renewable industry because I think they can be great mm. and will be great. It just takes time. Except I would like to see, rather than us pumping a lot of public money into it, giving companies that are renewable-based more of an opportunity to expand. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But also part of that is being politically certain on it. Mm. Like I had um, an in- Australia's biggest infrastructure fund as a client mm-hmm. and they basically had $15 billion ready to go to invest mm. in renewables. Yeah. And the lack of leadership on that Mm. prevented them from doing any anything yeah and i think well we, we all know the leaders in renewable energy are the oil industry they're the ones that have been investing for a long time 
and they've been investing in companies and funds that deal with renewables. I mean, Shell has one of the largest renewable research departments. Yeah, I think as well as the Saudis, it's sort of the writing is on the wall. Yeah, they, they know it's coming. Yeah. And I would like to say to people like Elon Musk, if you bring Tesla here, you pay 15% tax in America, you'll pay 5% here. Because although in the short term we'll be losing tax revenue that we wouldn't be getting anyway, I mean, that's what people say. I say, oh, you can't offer him a tax break to 5%. I'll say, well, why? He wasn't coming here anyway. It's not like he was here and we were getting 15%, then we cut it to 5 I would be happy to get Elon Musk over here at 5% tax rate. I think it's worth it in the long term mm. for us to be the leaders in renewable energy because we have the best landscape possible to test renewable resources. Yeah, I know, I know you had a quote in, um, in one of the interviews. What was it? 500 by 500 kilometer yeah. solar farm would power the world? Well, yeah, yeah, in Australia. It's just about transporting that. Trans- yeah. <laughs> Elsewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think the battery technology is probably going to be key to that. Mm. Um, what did you think then about the recent investment by the SA government in I that think, Tesla battery? I think it's great. Yeah. Because I think it's bringing – well, not only does it bring jobs for people who are interested in that in this country. Because think about it, if you're an expert in renewables in this country, I feel very sorry for you because you're going to have to move abroad. Whereas I'd like to keep them here. I mean, the SA government bringing in Elon Musk's technology is fantastic. Because not only does it give experts in Australia the chance to examine it, to look at it, and to experience it, but it gives us the opportunity to utilise it. And even if you don't believe in climate change, right, which I respect, there are sceptics and they have their reasons, that's fine. But just as, as a precaution, maybe do something. Because if you are wrong, on the off chance and the very likely chance, you are wrong. You, you might want to take some action fairly quickly. Yeah, I, I sort of find it amusing out yeah, a lack of not foresight, but leadership to go and do something about it. I think, to be honest, there are one of the guests I had has focused on an area called catastrophism, mm-hmm. where looking at the impact of um, planetary catastrophes mm-hmm. like um, tsunamis, earthquakes, etc. Mm-hmm. And one of those areas was um, the effects of meteors on the history of the planet and just that how dramatic that effect has been. I mean, we know that a meteor essentially wiped out the dinosaurs for, you know, the 15 or 15 years? No, it was longer than that, well over that. A long time after the meteor hit basically killed everything out. Mm. So I think we've actually, as a species, we've got bigger issues to look Mm. at. I just wish we'd get past this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) so that 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 would be key. Um, why do you think Trump was? Why, why do you think there was such a landslide in his favor? Because he was real. You think that's the only reason? I think that's the, one of the biggest reasons. Because he, you, he just felt like you could believe him and trust him, and his policies that he was giving that he were, were real policies. Like they were down to earth, they were realistic. He was bringing back an era of telling people, no. He was able to tell people, no, this can't happen, this can happen. We're going to get rid of this, we're going to keep... He brought it back to something simple. One of the biggest problems that politics had for a long time was they say, okay, we're going to get rid of uh, these welfare payments. Oh, but don't worry, we're going to replace them with this convoluted, complex system of payments. And But no, just get rid of them. You don't have to bring in something new just to make people feel okay about getting rid of it. People feel good about the government taking a stand and doing something. 
People feel good about people doing something and saying what they're saying. I mean, every time Donald Trump said something controversial, he got more popular. And that's because he was willing to speak his mind. And that, I think that's so important. I have no problem ever saying something controversial or that people would say, oh, no, that's racist. Oh, no, that's this, that's that, that's sexy. No, it's just I'm going to have this is what I believe and I'm happy to express it. And that's what pe- people are tired of politicians holding their tongue because they're worried about opinion polls. Donald Trump was never worried about his polls. Every time they went down, he said, oh, she's rigged it. Every time they went up, he said, yeah, I'm doing well. He didn't. He had an excuse for all of his policy shifts mm. and all of, his, all of his polling shifts. So he was happy just to go along with it and say what he wanted to say. And people liked that. Yeah, I think that was definitely a comp- – I mean, I feel like he, he's lied a lot, so I feel like we're going to disagree on that. But I feel that he spoke to a lot of people who are being told that they were racist mm. or and that people who had probably felt the brunt of the GFC and had never recovered. And I think that, you know, you, you've got people that voted twice for Obama uh, who voted for Trump. Mm. So it's not as if they're all racist. Well, one of the best stories I saw was a 90-year-old war veteran and he was voting for the first time in his life, and he was voting for Donald Trump. Right. Because he never identified with a politician before. But when somebody came up and they spoke their mind and they were willing to just say, almost go back to an era 50 years ago, where you were happy just to say what was happening, tell people there are problems that we're going to fix them and this is what we're going to do, and then do it. And he really believed in it. And I think a lot of people, people are tired of being told by People like Hillary Clinton, you're a deplorable person because yeah. you said this. I Hil- think, uh, I mean, a lot of people would disagree with this, but I remember Sam Harris basically in his frustration because he his view was that Hillary Clinton had to be voted in because he so despised Donald Trump. And he said basically that the election of Trump was a repudiation of the left. That's his anal- that was what his analysis is. Hmm. Um, I think, and that was sort of exemplary when you're watching the feed of the Young Turks. And I used to find that the Young Turks <laughs> were sort of a very middle, in the middle organisation. They used to be, and now they're pretty extreme. And um, I just remember, yeah, Anna Kasparin basically telling people that they were a piece of shit. Hmm. Um or no, it was women who voted for Trump for were a piece of shit, and I yeah. just found that that is exactly the reason why the political landscape is the way it is. Yeah. It's people just cannot, you know, as we are now, just sit down and rationally have a conversation about certain topics. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting time. It is, <laughs> and you know, there there were women who were, and the one of the biggest mistakes that I saw the pollsters make. And even before they announced it, was they said that Donald Trump would lose because he would lose the Latino vote. That was one of their biggest mistakes because they mixed up, one, Mexican people and Latino people are different things. I mean, Latin American is all of Central and some of South America. Yeah. And a lot of those countries hate Mexico. I mean, a lot of Central American countries hate Mexico because Mexico just sends their, they just will not secure their borders. And also, legal Mexican immigrants in America hate illegal Mexican immigrants because the legal Mexican immigrants went through all of the trouble and pain to get their citizenship the right way, come in, work, get a job, pay tax. 
the biggest mistake they made was they the poll the polling themselves, especially the left wing polling, were making racial generalizations that every Latino person would just say no to Donald Trump because he said one thing about illegal Mexican immigrants. And when you make those sort of generalizations in politics, you lose. Because when you just say, oh, or everyone, like if Donald Trump had have said, oh, it's fine because I'm not worried because every white person in America is going to vote for me, it would have been a very, very short and failed election campaign. Mm. Because you can't generalize people by their voting patterns based on their age or their gender or their race. And that's when political strategists come unstuck if they do that. So what can they focus on? Well, you just need to focus on giving people policies that they can believe in, giving people hope that they believe in. Because it's very easy to go and talk about hope in the future, but it doesn't mean people will believe you. Mm. I can say, I could go up and say, oh, it's fine, guys. In the future, it's all going to be wonderful. You're all going to have these amazing Tesla cars. We're going to give everyone a free Tesla car, and we're going to have these you know, mega buildings that are all – people aren't going to believe you. You need to give people realistic things that they are going to be achieve and that they believe that they can achieve on their own. Mm-hmm. People believe that under Donald Trump they could achieve starting their own small business because he's cutting their taxes. People need to believe in themselves and then believe in the government. What's your opinion on on what's happened in Syria? And then I know that I'm pretty sure you were interviewed about his strike on Syria. I might have been. Yeah, I might have like, something. Yeah, maybe you were. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I've seen something. But what's your opinion on this proxy war? When I first saw sorry, Donald Trump's concern on the strike, I sort of supported it. Then after that, I realized that it really wasn't a good choice. I mean, because it, it was a totally ineffective military choice. I mean, it destroyed like one runway and two planes. Yeah. But I think on the war in general in Syria, I think that ISIS is vitally important to defeat. But I think we should be making an ally out of Vladimir Putin and Bashar al-Assad. People are very it, – it annoys me when governments won't ally with someone because they disagree with how they run their country. You might disagree with how Bashar al-Assad runs his country. Most people do. It wouldn't surprise me if in his personal moments Vladimir Putin disagreed with some of the choices made by Bashar al-Assad. But strategically, it's far more it, – it, it works far better for Australia – to make an alliance with Assad and Putin and work together both with ISIS and beyond that than it does for us to be butting heads with them. Is that because it creates a, v- a power vacuum? Well, not only does it if, – if we work against them after – say we defeat ISIS in the ideal world, the caliphate is wiped out, then we butt heads with Assad, the West, and we kick him out of power. It's never worked. We've kicked dictators out of power before, and then you just get someone worse. It, it, if you work with these people, then you know. But it gives us the Australian military, which should be much larger and would be if if I under stronger Australia. But we need to have a bigger military so we can have our own foothold in the Middle East. It's not just America and Britain that gets the fun of having a foothold in the Middle East, or the fun, you know, the, the strategic advantage. We should everyone should have the right to have it. And if Australia wants to ally with Russia and Assad, that's what we should be doing. Because Russia and Assad will never break apart, ever. I can never see it happening. Yeah, there's too much. Um, they've committed too much. Mm. It's, it's the commitment and consistency principle. And it works just so well. I wrote an article about why um, Bashar al-Assad and Vladimir Putin work together. 
Well, it's obvious. They get arms exactly. and they get a base in the middle. Exactly. It's, yeah. And the from Syria, you could fire a warhead from Russia, Russia's warhead, right into Europe and into Turkey. Into, I mean, it's just such a perfect relationship and we should be part of that. Why can't we get in on that? We don't have a strong enough relationship with Russia. Yeah. I can't see it happening. You know, I mean, because the primary reason that this happened is that the the US government, well, mainly the Saudis. Hmm. Honestly, my opinion and the whole issue in the region is because of the Saudis and their- They um, do cause a lot of problems. Extension of their power through um, hmm. Salafism hmm. Uh, or the Salafi, you know, ideology hmm. and- Funding different groups yeah. and all that. The whole thing with Qatar is a joke because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. they're just doing your bidding. They're just the Switzerland of the region, exactly. Um, but in my mind, it's never going to happen because it's a proxy war. Mm. You know, you've got they really just wanted a pipeline to go from Iraq to Turkey, and mm. the only way to do that is it has to go through Syria. Mm. And this is why we've they funded these radical groups. Um, mm well, as they call rebel groups yeah. in the region now, there's definitely some legitimacy to it. Like Bashar al-Assad wasn't the nicest of guys, was he? I'm sure no, they tortured nice people, guy. they killed people for the for oh. terrible reasons. Yeah. Um, but again, like I go back to the point that I can't see any good coming out of breaking down um, a, a non-religious dictator in the region it's mm. just going to be you know someone's just going to come into the yeah. to the power vacuum and it will be like very likely a radical islamic leader mm. because that's the only person well that's the alternative option yeah. so you've either got a secular a, leader a secular leader or a radical i think the biggest problem we have in that region is turkey because he's so unpredictable yeah, Turkey to me is one of the saddest things ever. Mm. You know, like to see what that country was when I was in Europe in 2012. Mm-hmm. I was actually there when they shot the Turkish jet over the Syrian border. Yes. Um, that certainly heated things up. Yeah. And but uh, Erdogan is just so unpredictable as a leader. And he's just, well, well they, he's an Islamist. That's yeah, the problem. They had a constitution that in the constitution guaranteed secularism. Mm. And, and he, now he changed, it. changed it. Yeah. And he, went, he thought, oh, do you know what? Parliament's got a bit of power. I wouldn't mind that power. And they voted for it in a referendum and supported him. He's created such a cult of personality that he's becoming a democratically supported dictator. Yeah, so it's sort of a nationalism which goes around the um, – God, who was the, the – um, Oh, yeah, Ataturk. Ataturk. Yeah, what do you call the movement of Ataturk? It's not Ataturkism, but it's got a certain name. Yeah, it does. You're right. Um, but the movement, it's a, mm. it's his movement was focused on secularism mm. and democracy. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's really sad because I've got a lot of young friends in Turkey. Like my family's family's from Cyprus, mm. so it's right next door. Yeah, um, and Erdogan is not a good thing for Cyprus. So hence, yeah. it's been widely not, talked about yeah. um, because he'll just annex the rest oh, he of will. Cyprus. Of course, he will. He's That's that what type he of leader. I mean, I, the best way I think to deal with Turkey personally is to create Kurdistan. Yeah. Because it would destroy Turkey's direct border with the Middle East. Therefore, they would have no influence. Yeah, but the the, the US has listed the PKK as a terrorist organization. Yeah, which is strange considering they're fighting on the same side. Exactly. Yeah. It's like listing Russia or Assad as an enemy of America while they're fighting to help you get rid of someone. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I think if somebody from Australia goes and fights with the Kurds, 
they should be let back. I mean, I understand if you go and fight for ISIS, I don't think you should ever be allowed back. I don't, I don't support the idea of letting them back and then putting them in jail. Just don't, don't let them back. It would, it's just such a non-issue. Why would you let someone back who we knew went and fight for ISIS just to pay $60,000 a year to keep them in a prison? What do you think then of when they arrest uh, people going into the region? Well, I think I can – I don't think you should arrest people who want to leave to fight for ISIS. Really? If well, you, a lot of people would argue that that would just cr- just furthers the issue, doesn't it? If you want to fight for ISIS, go and fight for ISIS. You're not welcome back. I, I'm more fearful having someone in one of those apartment buildings – that wants to fight for ISIS living here in Australia than I am someone who wants to fight for ISIS fighting for ISIS in Syria. Because ISIS will never have the manpower or support to conquer all the world powers that are fighting it. Because America isn't even fighting ISIS with 1% of what they could be. And I mean, New Zealand and Australian coalition, which is which is over there just doing couple of little bombing runs here and there. Russia couldn't care less. They've just sent the jets that they weren't using to escort Russian ministers around. I mean, if ISIS was ever really an issue in the long term, they would just be wiped out in seconds. Well, what what then of your thoughts about, I guess, homegrown terrorists and the impact that that can have? Like a lot of the terrorists, for a start, aren't immigrants, but they're actually... Mm. residents like Absolutely. second generation residents who have gone over then come back mm. so that's that, that sort of aligns with what you're saying is you you just wouldn't want them back no and na- being a nationless person is a thing i mean there are nationless people in the world that have no citizenship that happened to the kurds i mean they were just stripped of their turkish citizenship and now they had no they were nationless and that was terrible because there was no reason for that it was just because you know they didn't like them. But I think that there is absolutely a reason to strip them of their Australian citizenship and tell them that you're now a citizen of no nation. You can go and fight for the Islamic Caliphate. You can go and get in one of those buildings that we're about to destroy with a, a drone. It doesn't matter because you're not the sort of person that's – not only are you not the sort of person that Australia wants, you're not the sort of person that the world wants, that belongs in society. So I would I don't I don't want homegrown terrorists to stay here. I want them to leave. How did you deal? Or what did you think about the the ban? The ban on oh, Donald Trump's yeah Donald yeah. Trump's ban on the Middle East, which well, I found amazing, considering that Saudi Arabia is probably the but when you have an, the biggest region, uh, the biggest <laughs> problem when it comes when you have to a hundred and ninety five billion dollar arms deal. Yeah, you can't really happen. Yeah, I I think it was a total misrepresentation to call it a Muslim ban. Personally. Because if you're a Christian, you don't think. Because if you're a Christian from that country, you can't go to America. If you're a Buddhist from that country, you can't go to America. Aren't they just put onto? I mean, I guess if if you put into a refugee system, then you're sort of prioritized, aren't you? In this country, you're prioritized if you're Christian. I'm talking about in, for uh, America. For America, you are in in for America. If you're if you meet what America wants, which is it's a Christian country. America. That's what they want. And I respect that. You know, good for you. You have that right. I have no problem if they want to let – if they want to ban a religion, that's fine. That's up to them. That's their sovereign right as a sovereign nation. I don't believe in controlling the actions of sovereign nations like that. But it wasn't a Muslim ban. It was a ban on those countries where terrorists had come from before. They should have banned Saudi Arabia. You don't, you don't think it's counterproductive to the whole issue of homegrown terrorism? I think – 
it's difficult to work out in this sort of complex landscape what is going to be productive. Donald Trump made a campaign promise that got him votes. He delivered on the campaign promise. I can't blame him for that. I mean, I would, I would be more upset if Donald Trump promised a Muslim ban and didn't deliver it because he would have broken an election promise. <laughs> he promised his supporters that went and voted for him on election day and made him the leader of that country. I remember you said this in Tom Ballard's interview about the border force thing. You were, yeah. you were more annoyed that Tony Abbott didn't stick to the principle of yeah. the policy. I was. But doesn't that, doesn't that make sense, though, to change your opinion on something as the situation changes? Only if there's a reason to change it. And there was no reason to change the border force policy. It was would have been an effective policy if it had have been pushed. I mean, the policy wasn't the best, you can imagine. Only because who carries their passport, who carries their ID all the time, who carries their visa all the time? No one. But if they could have in, installed it, it was, it was more of an effective political maneuver to stick to your guns. Because all it showed was that the government was willing to bend over backwards to make the left happy, to make the Labor Party happy. That's not what opposition's about. If you have an opposition in government, you want them to be absolutely on a tirade about your policies all the time. Why is that? Because that gives people an option. You, I would want this country to be as divided between the two parties as possible. I want, you know, I want a, an Atlantic Ocean of divide so then people have the option. If you look at Britain, the Conservative Party is nothing like the Labour Party. And it gives people the choice because now it's Liberal or Labour Party, take, make your, take your pick. I mean, there's no difference. I think you should be as divided as possible to give people both sides of the issue. Because right now, people only see the centre ground in the mainstream, major parties. Whereas if you had a divide, people would be seeing both of these extremes and then there'd be centrists that would be looking in the middle. Mm. Then you've got room for more parties. That's why I run the campaign group. That's why I said, when Stronger Australia launches next year as a party, we're going to make sure we're pushing policies that are different and that we think will work. We're not just going to play the same line. Or just play two issues, like Pauline Hanson seems just to play Muslim ban and halal. <laughs> She's got a, an intriguing fascination with it. And the only problem I have with that is that it doesn't provide her voters with a whole base of policy that they could have. I mean, Cory Bernardi is very religious. What about the non-religious conservatives and people who want policies but don't like his religious element? I mean, you need a party that's different and they can provide that for 24 million people, can provide policies that work. You know, not just taking snippets of stuff and just getting one Senate seat or two Senate seats every now and then. You know, you want to be able to build a party that can one day govern a country. Mm. There's a lot I want to cover here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's, your, what's your take on same-sex same marriage? That was something that you wanted to be done, right? Yeah, I'm a supporter of same-sex marriage. Yeah. Because I believe in, you know, it, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect anyone negatively. I absolutely agree that the church should not be forced to perform same-sex marriages. I'll accept that any day of the week. Yeah. yeah I think who cares? Like, people just go get it done elsewhere. Yeah, get it done elsewhere. And it, if, if, a gay per, if two gay people get married, it doesn't affect me. Plus, I think you can pretty... Um, I'm pretty sure you can go to an Anglican or a Protestant church and they'll say, yeah, okay. You might be able to, yeah. Yeah. But just because two what? gay people get married doesn't mean I'm suddenly gay. That's what I don't understand. You know what I mean? It doesn't enforce it on anyone. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny when the Cory Bernardis of the world start saying, oh, what's next? What's yeah, exactly. Next? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. It's just, yeah. I, I, what was the, you had a, uh, a brilliant um, explanation or rational thought about it and it was to do with statistics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With a, if there are, say, um, 10% of the population. 10% of the population. If you just said that <laughs> that 10% of the population doesn't have, isn't gay, but they can't get married. Everyone would be up in arms, but if you say, "Oh no, they're gay," so like if if you just took two and a half million people, straight couples, and just said they can never get married, people would be upset. Cory Bernardi would be the first one to say, "Oh my god, that's terrible! You're taking away their right." But then, as soon as you say they're gay, suddenly everyone says, "Well, you know, people like Cory Bernardi say you can't get married." Mm. There's just there's no rational thought behind it yeah but there's such a small percentage anyway it's like 88 percent of the population yeah support, i think agrees with this which is why it should be done i mean you have to look at the majority what what do you think then about tony abbott wanting to do a plebiscite i think a plebiscite is a waste of time because why do you think he's doing that though why did he do that because he was scared that he would <coughs> he, it was a way to try and win over people who supported gay marriage without losing people who didn't so the the biggest problem I have with the plebiscite is because the marriage is in the constitution, man or woman, you need a referendum to change it anyway. And a referendum is just a, a binding plebiscite. So you might as well save the money and just go straight into a referendum. The plebiscite was just a way to keep people who didn't like gay marriage happy by saying it's okay, it's just an opinion poll, but then try and win over people who supported it. And you think that percentage of people who didn't want gay marriage is smaller than maybe what he thought? I think I think it is smaller than what he thought in the party. That is in the party. But however, I think that you know that's the beautiful thing about a referendum and a double majority is that you have to have a clear majority of people want it. And I think even if you don't support gay marriage, if you support democracy, you'll support the result of that referendum. That's the important part. Mm. It, it was just like people who said Donald Trump's a fascist. Then when he got elected, they said, oh, we should kick him out. He doesn't deserve to be president. Well, that's not how democracy works. You're the fascist. If you believe you should kick someone out because you don't agree with their, their, their ideas. Yeah. When it comes to democracy, do you wish uh, – I find it strange that you want a – that you're okay with a, a monarchy because I, I feel like it would be better, better for us to go towards a more – direct democracy i mean for me the ultimate system is like switzerland yeah yeah that form of direct democracy where you can basically vote i think they vote like four times a year yeah on different um pieces of you know legislation that may affect the constitution or their lives Mm. do you do you ever wish that we had something like that i would like a good you know the american system if you look at their election their ballot papers you don't just have the one thing so you'll have election on there. There'll be tick the box for who you think should be the water board secretary, and this and this and this and this and this. And we've got a couple of referendum proposals here. Tick those. I would like more consistent referendums because we have so many issues that divide people totally that we need the people to say what they want. And politicians, I don't think, give enough credit that people can think for themselves. I don't believe in compulsory voting. Because I think not having an opinion is a valid opinion. So if you have no opinion on a topic, that's valid. There are a lot of people who don't have opinions on things. There are things that I don't have an opinion on, like abortion. I have no opinion on abortion. 
because it's not my place. It doesn't affect me. I mean, if a woman wants to, I can see that a woman would want to get an abortion. That is her choice. But I think that the father should have input too because it affects him. Yeah, but I don't have an opinion on whether it should be legal or not. Where I think we need to take certain things to the people, really divisive issues. Yeah, that was one intriguing thing about the Swiss system. I think like three out of five people vote on something yeah. at any one time. So the ability to abstain sometimes can be a good thing. Abstain. I think it's important to abstain. How then do you, I mean, we spoke about the derivativeness mm. of Australia mm. when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah. How do you then deal with the fact of having a British monarch as head of state? Because I feel that, um, I mean, Paul Keating spoke about this and I would agree with him on it. It seems odd if we want to project ourselves more in the world. Because I sort of feel like we're in this unique place to sort of be this intermediary nation in the Asia Pacific. Well, the Queen isn't Australian, but she's not British either. She has no passport. She has no nationality, basically. That's part of her independence. And one of the biggest reasons I support the moment, one, they've dedicated so much and they've built Australia into a success. And number two is it just wouldn't be effective to get rid of it. It would be expensive and it would cost outrageously more to have a president. What do you mean? Oh, okay, in terms of the administration. of Yeah, I mean, we're very lucky here. Our head of state is paid for by someone else. Is it really? The British government pays for the monarchy. So what? tell me, what? what's the benefits... What are the primary benefits of the, the current system? Is it just purely dollars? Well, it saves us money. They're totally politically independent. We can predict their actions, so we know that they will sign off on things. It's They're bound by convention, the Governor-General. And we, will, we know that they will, who will come next. So we're able to see into the future on who, what sort of political shifts we're going to be dealing with. And at the same time, it would cost something like $2.6 billion just for the change from monarchy. In terms of annual expenditure? No, just in terms of one-off expenditure to do the quit to the shift from um, monarchy to presidential. And then every year after that, if you look at the uh, French, comparable as French presidency, because it would be a similar structure, and there are 153 million euros a year. I mean, that's huge compared to the... The British government, I think, pays thirty-two million for the um, million pounds for the monarchy every year. Couldn't you argue that that's a worthy expenditure to be willing to project ourselves more in the world? Well, we can project ourselves more in the world with the the Queen still as our head of state, because it's head. Of, she is the head of state, and she's the commander in chief of the armed forces of Britain, but she doesn't have control over all our actions. I I would support, if this was proposed, a move more towards Canada's system where she is totally ceremonial. Explain that for people who wouldn't understand. So our system here, she still signs off on law. She still has to approve everything through the Governor-General, yeah. through a vice-regal representative. She still has to have – but in, a, in Canada, it's totally ceremonial. She basically has absolutely no power. So the Governor-General there does it's, not even speak to her? No, well, he speaks to her and they communicate and she comes and does tours and speaks, but she's just ceremonial. They kept her as head of state because it worked. It was, it was cheap. Someone else was paying for it. It worked for hundreds of years. People were happy with the queen. It kept a strong democracy, checks and balances. And I think until we really have a necessity to change or move away from the monarchy, there's no reason. What would be that situation, do you think? 
The only situation I can think of is if Australia was involved in a wartime situation that Britain opposed, that's when there would be a necessity. Okay. If we were in, if say we decided that uh, we want, this is just a hypothetical, whatever, if we wanted to annex New Zealand or we wanted to annex an island in the Pacific and Britain said, well, we're going to oppose you militarily and diplomatically. Yeah. Well, that's okay. when you would say, we're going to have to cut ties. And that's when you'd have a necessity. But until there's a necessity, there's no reason. I mean, obviously another reason might be if the monarchy and the Governor-General directly opposed the result of a referendum or something or directly opposed the result of some sort of democratic process. That, again, is where you'd have to start saying, okay, well, what are we doing here, guys? But until there's a necessity like that, they've served this country with amazing honour and effectiveness for I can so long. I can agree um, with the money side, but I don't know. I feel like there's something powerful mentally to having an Australian head of state for me personally. Well, people, it, it might be a morale boost. I mean, I don't get along well with Peter Fitzsimons. He blocked me on Twitter because I told him that, because he said that if he ever got interviewed by Alan Jones, he wouldn't be able to keep his cool. And I said, well, if you can't keep your cool, don't be in politics. <laughs> then he blocked me on Twitter and then I called him brain damaged on national radio. So I don't oh, get along with him. What are you doing? <laughs> I don't get along with him at all. Why? Why can't you have a cordial conversation? <laughs> well, he's never offered a conversation. Hmm. If you'd like to have a conversation, I'd be happy I would be happy to sit down with Peter Fitzsimons and have a conversation. Hmm. Because he goes on about the only reason that you can't be head of state is because you're Australian. It's not the reason. The reason is you're not directly in line for the throne. I mean, it's not because you're Australian. And he says, oh, let's get rid of the monarchy. There's just, there is no necessity to. I'm not some deluded person where if we absolutely need it, I go, no, guys, let's just imagine the problems aren't there. The thing is, they're just, he's imagining problems exist where they don't. It's effective. It's an effective system at the moment. So just leave it. What have been your favourite instructional books or resources when you first got into politics? What have you read that's really built your opinions? I have read ideological books from basically every ideology. Okay. And that was being the biggest thing that I've committed to doing. So you've read a lot about Marxism and... I have read The Communist Manifesto. Yeah. I've read Mein Kampf. Really? I have read Margaret Thatcher's Statecraft, The Downing Street Years. I've read books by Milton Friedman. I've read books about how the American economy works, about how the Australian economy works. I've, I make sure that I'm knowledgeable about all ideologies because one of my pet hates is when someone attacks an ideology they know nothing about. I mean, people who attack communism, and I hate communism, and they say, oh, you know, uh, it's just terrible because, uh, you know, I don't know why, it's just people die. That's not an argument. One of the good, a good quote from, I think it was Ronald Reagan, he said, a socialist is someone who's read Lenin and Marx. An anti-socialist is someone who understands Lenin and Marx. So I make sure I read it and I understand it. I mean, Mein Kampf is not an easy read. <laughs> it's long. Yeah. And he wrote it in a prison cell, so it goes on for a long time. Yeah. And when you read it and then compare it to history, you go, well, there are lessons to be learned here about, you know, people's policy changes and things. What did you take away from that well, book? One of the things was that he... Do you, th do you think people could have predicted what he would have done if they'd just read the book? 
I, I think it was no very hard. Right. So he he was not a national socialist. That's just if you read the book and then compare his actions in the book, he says that he thinks trade unions. I hate trade unions, by the way. I hate. I think they should be banned, outlawed. But he says that he thinks they're really, really important. One of his first things that he did was he banned trade unions. <laughs> so he, it's, his actions aren't predictable from the book because he wrote the book to get people riled up and for people to believe in. He get, he get, that's why he was so successful. The book was something for people to believe in. It was something they could hold in their hands, read and believe in. And they could imagine themselves living in this amazing, you know, German world. And that's why he was so successful because he gave people something to hold on to. He built a story. Yeah, exactly. He built a narrative that worked for him. Yeah. And that's what a lot of politicians – and the Communist Manifesto is just really dry. Like there's no inspiration in there. It's just like – especially you – know, it just goes on about the bourgeoisie and how they're terrible and, oh, my God – and you just read it, go, and I got through it. I'm like, oh, that just wasn't – I don't feel any better about it now because I tried to go into it with an open mind and you just finish it and you go, I'm not really sure about that. What are other books that you've read where you've been intrigued by their writing style? Well, Margaret – really surprised. Margaret Thatcher's Downing Street Years I found was really, really good and almost surprisingly unpolitician-like. Because so? it was, she wrote it after she left politics, and she'd had a, and she really wrote it really brutally, honestly, and you just believed what she was saying. You didn't believe she was holding back, and you knew, and that's just the sort of person she was. Really, when you look at her, she was happy to give her opinion, even if people disagreed, and that's what made it a really good read. Because you're like, you know what? I believe that this this is really what happened behind the scenes, and you realize that governing is it's if you read Margaret Thatcher's Statecraft and uh, the Downing Street Years. Governing is not as easy as writing down a policy on paper and getting it through Parliament. There are so many external factors that you have to take into account. I mean, one of my personal favourite things to study is military geography, and it's a very obscure subject. Military geography. Yeah, it's really obscure. It's not offered in any schools. It's not offered in any universities, I don't think, in Australia. And it's basically geopolitical landscapes – and everything like that, okay. but from a military perspective. Right. And it really gives you a different perspective on the world if you read, you know, different from – when you look at things from a military perspective, and because military is more than just where do I send my tank. It's all about politics. It's all about the hierarchy and how it works. And it molds economics, politics, everything together. And it's fascinating to study. Is there a book that stands out in your mind for that topic? Well, it's unfortunate that there isn't because there are really no books about it. Although Australia is one of the world leaders in the subject. Really? It's one of the only places the Australian Institute of Geographers or the Institute of Australian Geographers is one of the last organisations in the world that pushes for it to stay a subject. Right. And it's really fascinating. I mean, if you're interested in politics and economics and military, you know, and how wars work, all in one, that subject gives it to you. I think we should offer it in schools, but they don't. Who do you think is um, really good at this subject in Australia? Is there anyone that stands out or is it just this organisation? Yeah, there's no person that stands out, unfortunately, because we don't have a military that we've used enough. The best place you see it working is when people use their military. And if we had a bigger military like I would like to see, you would see the subject become far more important. But because our naval systems are weirdly small and our air force really isn't hugely capable in comparison and our land forces are tiny, 
we don't have enough to use it and experience it with. I mean, it's been, if you look at a lot of great generals, even in recent history, and people who have sort of commanded large militaries, a lot of them studied military geography because it's obscure, but it gives you politics, economics, and military strategy all in one. Hmm. And it's very, it's just fascinating. I'd love to read on it because that's one of my favorite areas. At the moment, I'm reading um, Team of Teams. Yes. Um, Stanley McChrystal, General Stanley McChrystal. Yeah. And uh, the next thing I'll probably read is I've already read it, uh, seen the show in the meantime is Band of Brothers. Yes. Um, by Major Dick Winners. But um, yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite areas. So I've got this obsession with World War II because I find it just such a bizarre period mm. in the history of the planet. Yeah, I agree. In, uh, well, in the human species, yeah. like, you know, you, you had a time where everything was just up in the air and everything, it was mm. like being back into the primal years. Yeah. You know? It's really, I mean, military strategy is one of my passions. I don't know why. I've just always been fascinated with it. Yeah. Because it's not only such a, a, a subject that brings in economics, politics, but also morals. You have to work out how would you deal with, I mean, I've worked with private military companies and things like that just in business. But how would you deal with, you know, telling people that this is what they're doing? Even in counterintelligence and things, how do you deal with knowing that you're finding out this information? It, it's all about, there's such a huge range of stuff in military strategy to study. Yeah. Do you have a morning ritual? I do. I used to, well, I used to, when I was working a lot, I used to work nine to nine and a half hours a day outside of school. So it was 16 hour days. I used to get up at 6.30 or 6.45, then just go and work and then get showered and dressed and ready for school. And since I sort of cut back on a few of my responsibilities, now I sleep until seven, get up, have a shower, and then just leave. Okay. Do you meditate? I don't. And in fact, <laughs> people will know about me that I'm an ardent, I'm ardent in opposition to meditation. Really? And in year nine, we were forced to do meditation, and I was very vocal that I didn't believe in it. That's just me personally. I think it helped, like for me as an A-type personality, I think it helps quite a lot with calming the brain yeah do you journal or anything like that i never have been able to keep a journal i'm very i'm the sort of person where if i was bored i would work if i was tired i would work if i was hungry and there was no food i would work i would just end if i if i had needed something to do i would just choose work and you know which works for a while but you know If you had to do a TED Talk on any topic other than politics and business and things that we've spoken about yeah. today, what would it be? That's a very, very good point. I think I would do it about, well, probably my other, the subject that I know about, things like wildlife conservation, I know quite a bit about. But if I was going to choose something, I wouldn't mind trying to do a TED Talk about something outside of my you know, knowledge. Like I've been executive director of the International Freedom Alliance. I don't know if you're familiar with Gert Wilders in, the, in Australia. I'm the executive director, so I could do it about Islam. And I was actually at school stopped from doing a speech about um, the dangers of Islam. Right. It was reported for hate speech. Really? Yes. And they hadn't read the speech. Okay. They just stopped me from doing it. I mean, I've, I'm very against censorship in schools. I think that no matter whether you're a private school, public school, whatever, you have a duty to expose people to all types of views. I mean, I am not a fan of Islam. 
I think we should ban the burqa. I think we should limit the Quran in how it's distributed. I think we should limit Islam itself. But I would absolutely welcome the school letting a Islamic preacher to talk to us about the benefits of Islam. Right. As long as I'm allowed to talk about the dangers of Islam. See, for me personally, I don't really care. I mean, for me, it's about any religion. I find it weird that uh, the left side of politics is sort of sided with Islamic yeah, extremists. Yeah. Um, I don't see the point in banning those sorts of things. I think they, if they want to do it, they want to be orthodox in their religious mm. practice, then sure. But um, I just I find it odd. Um yeah, the, the siding with certain religions when mm. if you had asked me back in the 1930s what was the most dangerous uh, religion in the world, I would have said the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. Like they sided with the Nazis. They allowed yeah. pogroms to happen in uh, the East. And now we have it with further extreme groups of uh, religious groups. And mm. this is in this case Islam. And I just don't understand why people are siding with religious no. groups. It's sort of really bizarre, but, yeah. you know, um, there you go. <laughs> I know, it, I find it very strange. I just believe in seeing both sides. Like, I believe in climate change, but I want people at school to learn about climate change denial. Yeah, so you're saying that they should be wide in there. Make sure that everybody has their views exposed because that's where you develop your views. I wouldn't have the views I do now if I hadn't read, you know, um, the Communist Manifesto. If I hadn't have read that, I'd just be – I wouldn't know why I didn't like – like I wouldn't have the same understanding of why I dislike it. Right. It's important to expose yourself to views you might disagree with to find the ones that you do agree with. And it's important not to think that just because somebody was bad in some areas, you can't adopt any of their thoughts. That's also dangerous. Yeah. Like I'm not – I wouldn't – I'm not going to adopt the humanitarian <laughs> policies of General Pinochet. Because he used to throw opposition leaders out of helicopters. Yeah. But his economic policies worked. And they worked for countries that are much poorer than ours. Yeah. And they're still there. It's important to make sure you develop your views from like a wide base, a wide source. If you could have a billboard anywhere in the world and it could say anything, where would it be and what would it say? Well, that's a very good one. Well... There are a couple – one that just popped into mind. I, if I could have a billboard along a Saudi Arabian highway that had a picture of a woman holding her burqa and it just said, take it off, I would have that. <laughs> just because it would, you know, really annoy the Saudi government and show that, you know, women do have the right to take off their burqa if they want to. Mm. Because I believe that it's just very oppressive. But there are lots of other things that – honestly – if I would like to have a billboard, if I knew it would work, that got people more interested in things like military strategy, because I think it's, it's, it's an area that annoys me endlessly that the Australian government doesn't invest in. In America, in Australia, well, in Australia, to be a military strategist and to strategize for military operations, you have to be in the army. But America knew, found out ages ago, that the best minds don't always have the physical capability to be a soldier. So they brought in something called a military analyst. We have none of that. Mm. And that means if you can't do 15 push-ups and pass the beep test, we have no interest in your thoughts on military strategy. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, it just doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, a billboards are – I'd love a billboard everywhere that just, just talks about freedom. 
Yeah. Just talk about your, your right to say whatever you want. I would like to have a billboard in a really left wing in Brunswick. I'd like to have a billboard in Brunswick that just said being politically correct is boring. That's an interesting way of putting it. We'll, we'll, wrap, we'll wrap this up real quick because no I think someone's uh, beeping the uh, the intercom system. That's right. If people were to find you on the interwebs, where would it be? Uh, on Facebook is where I do a lot of mine. Just look up Edward Burke. It's the verified page. Okay. And also have a look at my political campaign group, Stronger Australia. Yeah. www.strongeraus.org. Yeah. We're launching as a party next year. So we're hoping just to give people an, a real alternative, like one that doesn't just focus on halal and Islam and one that doesn't just focus on, oh, my God, God's coming, quick, be good. You know, one that gives people a real alternative to just the two major parties. Yeah. Well, look, Ed, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. No worries. It was great speaking to you. Thank you for making it this far. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like the episode, maybe consider leaving us a review. Just head to the web, search iTunes or Stitcher. When you get to that, go Uncommon Neural, and it'll be the first podcast available. Maybe as well consider signing up to the newsletter. I think about 90% I last checked of our subscribed listeners are on the newsletter as well. Uh, from there, you'll get show notes, priority access. You'll be the first to know when an episode is live. Head to neural.com slash podcast and fill in your details there. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or Instagram. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.